This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Today's podcast is a reading of The Inn by Guy de Montpassant. It's read for us by Mirko Stauk, and he'll be talking about it with me afterwards. The Inn by Guy de Montpassant Resembling in appearance all the wooden hostelries of the High Alps, situated at the foot of glaciers and the barren rocky gorges that intersect the summits of the mountains, the Inn of Schwarenbach serves as a resting place for travellers crossing the Gemmi Pass. It remains open for six months in the year and is inhabited by the family of John Hauser. Then, as soon as the snow begins to fall and to fill the valley so as to make the road down to Loik impassable, the father and his three sons go away and leave the house in charge of the old guide, Gaspard Ari, with the young guide Ulrich Kunzi and Sam, the great mountain dog. The two men and the dog remain till the spring in their snowy prison, with nothing before their eyes except the immense white slopes of the Balmhorn, surrounded by light, glistening summits, and are shut in, blocked up, and buried by the snow which rises around them, and which envelops, binds and crushes the little house, which lies piled on the roof, covering the windows, and blocking up the door. It was the day on which the Hauser family were going to return to Loik, as winter was approaching, and the descent was becoming dangerous. Three mules started first, laden with baggage and led by the three sons. Then the mother, John Hauser, and her daughter Louise mounted a fourth mule and set off in their turn, and the father followed them, accompanied by the two men in charge, who were to escort the family as far as the brow of the descent. First of all they passed round the small lake, which was now frozen over. At the bottom of the mass of rocks, which stretched in front of the inn, and then they followed the valley, which was dominated on all sides by the snow-covered summits. A ray of sunlight fell into that little white, glistening frozen desert, and illuminated it with a cold and dazzling flame. No living thing appeared among this ocean of mountains. There was no motion in this immeasurable solitude, and no noise disturbed the profound silence. By degrees, the young guide, Ulrich Kunzi, a tall, long-legged Swiss, left old man Hauser and old Gaspard behind in order to catch up the mule which bore the two women. The younger one looked at him as he approached and appeared to be calling him with her sad eyes. She was a young, fair-haired little peasant girl, whose milk-white cheeks and pale hair looked as if they had lost their color by their long abode amid the ice. When he had got up to the animal she was riding, he put his hand on the crupper and relaxed his speed. Mother Hauser began to talk to him, enumerating the minutest details, all that he would have to attend to during the winter. It was the first time that he was going to stay up there, while old Harry had already spent fourteen winters amid the snow at the inn of Schwarenbach. Ulrich Kunzi listened, without appearing to understand, and looked incessantly at the girl. From time to time he replied, Yes, Madame Hauser, 
but his thoughts seemed far away and his calm features remained unmoved. They reached Lake Dauber, whose broad, frozen surface extended to the end of the valley. On the right one saw the black, pointed, rocky summits of the Daubenhorn, beside the enormous moraines of the Lomann Glacier, above which rose the Wildstrubel, as they approached the Gemmi Pass, where the descent of Loik begins. They suddenly beheld the immense horizon of the Alps of the valley, from which the broad, deep valley of the Rhone separated them. In the distance there was a group of white, unequal, flat or pointed mountain summits which glistened in the sun, the Mischabel with its two peaks, the huge group of the Weisshorn, the heavy Brunichhorn, the lofty and formidable pyramid of Mont Servin, that slayer of men, the Dent Blanche, that monstrous coquette. Then beneath them, in a tremendous hole, at the bottom of a terrific abyss, they perceived Loik, where houses looked as grains of sand which had been thrown into that enormous crevice that is ended and closed by the gemmi and which opens down below the Rhone. The mule stopped at the edge of the path, which winds and turns continually, doubling backward, then fantastically and strangely, along the side of the mountain as far as the almost invisible little village at its feet. The women jumped into the snow, and the two old men joined them. Well, Father Hauser said, Goodbye, and keep up your spirits till next year, my friends. And old Harry replied, Till next year. They embraced each other, and then Madame Hauser in her turn offered her cheek, and the girl did the same. When Ulrich Kunzi's turn came, he whispered in Louise's ear, Do not forget those up yonder. And she replied, No in such a low voice, that he guessed what she had said without hearing it. Well, adieu, Jean Hauser repeated, and don't fall ill. And going before the two women, he commenced the descent, and soon all three disappeared at the first turn in the road, while the two men returned to the inn at Schwarenbach. They walked slowly, side by side, without speaking. It was over and they would be alone together for four or five months. Then Gaspardari began to relate his life last winter. He had remained with Michael Canol, who was too old now to stand it, for an accident might happen during that long solitude. They had not been dull, however. The only thing was to make up one's mind to it from the first, and in the end one would find plenty of distraction, games, and other means of whiling away the time. Ulrich Kunzi listened to him with his eyes on the ground, for in his thoughts he was following those who were descending to the village. They soon came in sight of the inn, which was, however, scarcely visible, so small did it look, a black speck at the foot of that enormous blow of snow, and when they opened the door, Sam, the great curly dog, began to romp round them. "'Come, my boy,' old Gaspard said. We have no woman now, so we must get our own dinner ready. Go and peel the potatoes. And they both sat down on the wooden stools and began to prepare the soup. The next morning seemed very long to Kunzi. Old Harry smoked and spat on the hearth, while the young man looked out of the window at the snow-covered mountain opposite the house. 
In the afternoon he went out, and going over yesterday's ground again, he looked for the traces of the mule that had carried the two women. Then, when he had reached the Gemi Pass, he laid himself down on his stomach and looked at Loik. The village in its rocky pit was not yet buried under the snow, from which it was sheltered by the pine woods which protected it on all sides. Its low houses looked like paving stones in a large meadow from above. Hauser's little daughter was there now, in one of the grey-coloured houses, in which Ulrich Kunzi was too far away to be able to make them out separately. How we would have liked to go down while he was yet able. But the sun had disappeared behind the lofty crest of the Wildstrubel, and the young man returned to the chalet. Daddy Harry was smoking, and when he saw his mate come in, he proposed a game of cards to him, and they sat down opposite each other on either side of the table. They played for a long time a simple game called brisk, and then they had supper and went to bed. The following days were like the first, bright and cold, without any fresh snow. Old Gaspard spent his afternoons in watching the eagles and other rare birds which ventured on those frozen heights, while Ulrich returned regularly to the Gemi Pass to look at the village. Then they played cards, dice, or dominoes, and lost and won a trifle, just to create an interest in the game. One morning, Ari, who was up first, called his companion. A moving, deep and light cloud of white spray was falling on them noiselessly, and was by degrees burying them under a thick, heavy coverlet of foam. That lasted four days and four nights. It was necessary to free the door and the windows, to dig out a passage and to cut steps to get over this frozen powder, which a twelve hours frost had made as hard as the granite of the moraines. They lived like prisoners, and did not venture outside their abode. They had divided their duties, which they performed regularly. Ulrich Kunzi undertook the scouring, washing, and everything that belonged to cleanliness. He also chopped up the wood, while Gaspard Ari did the cooking and attended to the fire. Their regular and monotonous work was interrupted by long games of cards or dice, and they never quarreled but were always calm and pleasant. They were never seen impatient or ill-humoured, nor did they ever use hard words, for they had laid in a stock of patience for their wintering on the top of the mountain. Sometimes old Gaspard took his rifle and went after Chermy, and occasionally he killed one. Then there was a feast at the end at Schwarenbrach, and they reveled in fresh meat. One morning he went out as usual. The thermometer outside marked eighteen degrees of frost, and as the sun had not yet risen, the hunter hoped to surprise the animals at the approaches of the Wildstrubel, and Ulrich, being alone, remained in bed until ten o'clock. He was of a sleepy nature, but he would not have dared to give way like that to his inclination in the presence of the old guide, who was ever an early riser. He breakfasted leisurely with Sam, who also spent his days and nights in sleeping in front of the fire. Then he felt low-spirited and even frightened at the solitude, and was seized by a longing for his daily game of cards, as one is by the carving of a confirmed habit 
and so he went out to meet his companion, who was to return at four o'clock. The snow had leveled the whole deep valley, filled up the crevices, obliterated all signs of the two lakes, and covered the rocks, so that between the high summits there was nothing but an immense, white, regular, dazzling and frozen surface. For three weeks Ulrich had not been to the edge of the precipice from which he had looked down on the village, and he wanted to go there before climbing the slopes which led to Wildstrubel. Leuk was now also covered by the snow, and the houses could scarcely be distinguished, covered as they were by that white cloak. Then, turning to the right, he reached the Lohmann glacier. He went along with a mountaineer's long strides, striking the snow, which was as hard as a rock, with his iron-pointed stick, and with his piercing eyes he looked for the little black, moving speck in the distance, on that enormous wide expanse. When he reached the end of the glacier, he stopped and asked himself whether the old man had taken that road, and then he began to walk along the moraines with rapid and uneasy steps. The day was declining. The snow was assuming a rosy tint, and a dry frozen wind blew in rough gusts over its crystal surface. Ulrich uttered a long, shrill, vibrating call. His voice sped through the death-like silence in which the mountains were sleeping. It reached the distance, across profound and motionless waves of glacial form, like the cry of a bird across the waves of the sea. Then it died away, and nothing answered him. He began to walk again. The sun had sunk yonder behind the mountain tops, which were still purple with the reflection of the sky, but the depths of the valley were becoming grey, and suddenly the young man felt frightened. It seemed to him as if the silence, the cold, the solitude, the winter death of these mountains were taking possession of him, were going to stop and to freeze his blood, to make his limbs grow stiff, and to turn him into a motionless and frozen object, and he set off running, fleeing toward his dwelling. The old man, he thought, would have returned during his absence. He had taken another road. He would, no doubt, be sitting before the fire, with a day charmy at his feet. He soon came inside of the inn, but no smoke rose from it. Ulrich walked faster and opened the door. Sam ran up to him and to greet him. But Gaspar Derry had not returned. Kunzi, in his alarm, turned round suddenly, as if he expected to find his comrade hidden in a corner. Then he relighted the fire and made the soup, hoping every moment to see the old man come in. From time to time he went out to see if he were not coming. It was quite night now, that when, livid night of the mountains, lighted by a thin yellow crescent moon just disappearing behind the mountain tops. Then the young man went in and sat down to warm his hands and feet, while he pictured to himself every possible accident. Gaspard might have broken a leg, have fallen into a crevasse, taken a false stamp and dislocated his ankle, and perhaps he was lying on the snow, overcome and stiff with the cold, in agony of mind, lost perhaps shouting for help, calling with all his might in the silence of the night. But where? The mountain was so vast, so rugged, so dangerous in places, especially at that time of the year, 
that it all would have required ten or twenty guides to walk for a week in all directions to find a man in that immense space. Ulrich Kunzi, however, made up his mind to set out with Sam if Gaspard did not return by one in the morning, and he made his preparations. He put provisions for two days into a bag, took a steel climbing iron, tied a long, thin, strong rope round his waist, and looked to see that his iron-shot stick and his eggs, which served to cut steps in the ice, were in order. Then he waited. The fire was burning on the hearth, the great dog was snoring in front of it, and the clock was ticking, as regularly as a heart beating, in its resounding wooden case. He waited, with his ears on the alert for distant sounds, and he shivered when the wind blew against the roof and the walls. It struck twelve, and he trembled. Then, frightened and shivering, he put some water on the fire so that he might have some hot coffee before starting, and when the clock struck one, he got up, woke Sam, opened the door, and went off in the direction of the Wildstrubel. For five hours he mounted, scaling the rocks by means of his climbing irons, cutting into the ice, advancing continually, and occasionally howling up the dog, who remained below at the foot of some slope that was too steep for him, by means of the rope. It was about six o'clock when he reached one of the summits to which old Gaspard often came after Chami, and he waited till it should be daylight. The sky was growing pale overhead, and a strange light, springing nobody could tell whence, suddenly illuminated the immense ocean of pale mountain summits, which extended for a hundred leagues around him. One might have said that this vague brightness arose from the snow itself and spread abroad in space. By degrees the highest distant summits assumed a delicate pink flesh color, and the red sun appeared behind the ponderous giants of the Bernese Alps. Ulrich Kunzi set off again, walking like a hunter, bent over, looking for tracks, and saying to his dog, Seek, old fellow, seek! He was descending the mountain now, scanning the depths closely, and from time to time shouting, uttering a loud, prolonged cry, which soon died away in that silent vastness. Then he put his ear to the ground to listen. He thought he could distinguish a voice, and he began to run and shouted again, but he heard nothing more and sat down, exhausted and in despair. Toward midday he breakfasted and gave Sam, who was as tired as himself, something to eat also, and then he recommenced his search. When evening came he was still walking and he had walked more than thirty miles over the mountains. As he was too far away to return home and too tired to drag himself along any further, he dug a hole in the snow and crouched in it with his dog under a blanket, which he had brought with him. And the man and the dog lay side by side, trying to keep warm, but frozen to the marrow nevertheless. Ulrich scarcely slept, his mind haunted by visions and his limbs shaking with cold. Day was breaking when he got up. His legs were as stiff as iron bars, and his spirits so low that he was ready to cry with anguish, while his heart was beating so that he almost fell over with agitation when he thought he heard a noise. Suddenly he imagined that he also was going to die of cold in the midst of this vast solitude, and the terror of such a death roused his energies and gave him renewed vigor. 
he was descending toward the inn, falling down and getting up again, and followed at a distance by Sam, who was limping on three legs. And they did not reach Schwarenbach until four o'clock in the afternoon. The house was empty, and the young man made a fire, had something to eat, and went to sleep, so worn out that he did not think of anything more. He slept for a long time, for a very long time, an irresistible sleep. But suddenly, a voice, a cry, a name, Ulrich, aroused him from his profound torpor and made him sit up in bed. Had he been dreaming? Was it one of those strange appeals which crossed the dreams of disquieted minds? No. He heard it still, that reverberating cry which had entered his ears and remained in his flesh to the tips of his sinewy fingers. Certainly somebody had cried out and called Ulrich. There was somebody there near the house. There could be no doubt of that. And he opened the door and shouted, Is it you, Gaspard? With all the strength in his lungs. But there was no reply, no murmur, no groan, nothing. It was quite dark, and the snow looked warm. The wind had risen, that icy wind that cracks the rocks and leaves nothing alive on those deserted heights, and it came in sudden gusts, which were more parching and more deadly than the burning wind of the desert. And again Ulrich shouted, Gaspard! 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 And then he waited again. Everything was silent on the mountain. And then he shook with terror, and with a bound he was inside the inn, when he shut and bolted the door, and then he fell into a chair, trembling all over, for he felt certain that his comrade had called him at the moment he was expiring. He was sure of that, as sure as one is of being alive or of eating a piece of bread. Old Gaspard Ari had been dying for two days and three nights somewhere in some hole, in one of those deep, untrodden ravines whose whiteness is more sinister than subterranean darkness. He had been dying for two days and three nights, and he had just then died, thinking of his comrade. His soul, almost before it was released, had taken its flight to the inn where Ulrich was sleeping, and it had called him by the terrible and mysterious power which the spirits of the dead have to haunt the living. That voiceless soul had cried to the worn-out soul of the sleeper. It had uttered its last farewell, or its reproach, or its curse on the man who had not searched carefully enough. And Ulrich felt that it was there, quite close to him, behind the wall, behind the door which he had just fastened. It was wandering about like a night-bird which lightly touches a lighted window with its wings, and the terrified young man was ready to scream with horror. He wanted to run away, but did not dare to go out. He did not dare, and he should never dare to do it in the future, for that phantom would remain there day and night, round the inn, 
As long as the old man's body was not recovered and had not been deposited in the consecrated earth of a churchyard. When it was daylight, Kunze recovered some of his courage at the return of the bright sun. He prepared his meal, gave his dog some food, and then remained motionless on a chair, tortured at heart as he thought of the old man lying on the snow. And then, as soon as night once more covered the mountains, new terrors assailed him. He now walked up and down the dark kitchen, which was scarcely lighted by the flame of one candle, and he walked from one end of it to the other with great strides, listening, listening whether the terrible cry of the other night would again break the dreary silence outside. He felt himself alone, unhappy man, as no man had ever been alone before. He was alone in this immense desert of snow, alone five thousand feet above the inhabited earth, above human habitation, above that stirring, noisy, palpitating life, alone under an icy sky. A mad longing impelled him to run away, no matter where, to get down to Loik by flinging himself over the precipice. But he did not even dare to open the door, as he felt sure that the other, the dead man, would bar his road. Toward midnight, tired with walking, worn out by grief and fear, he at last fell into a doze in his chair, for he was afraid of his bed as one is of a haunted spot. But suddenly the strident cry of the other evening pierced his ears, and it was so shrill that Ulrich stretched out his arms to repulse the ghost, and he fell backward with his chair. Sam, who was awakened by the noise, began to howl as frightened dogs do howl, and he walked all about the house, trying to find out where the danger came from. When he got to the door, he sniffed beneath it, smelling vigorously, with his coat bristling and his tail stiff, while he growled angrily. Kunsi, who was terrified, jumped up, and, holding his chair by one leg, he cried, Don't come in! Don't come in, or I shall kill you! And the dog, excited by this threat, barked angrily at that invisible enemy who defied his master's voice. By degrees, however, he quieted down, and came back and stretched himself in front of the fire. But he was uneasy, and kept his head up, and growled between his teeth. Ulrich, in turn, recovered his senses, but as he felt faint with terror, he went and got a bottle of brandy out of the sideboard, and he drank off several glasses, one after another, at a gulp. His ideas became vague, his courage revived, and the feverish glow ran through his veins. He ate scarcely anything the next day, and limited himself to alcohol, and so he lived for several days, like a drunken brute. As soon as he thought of Gaspard Harry, he began to drink again, and went on drinking until he fell to the ground, overcome by intoxication. And there he remained lying on his face, dead drunk, and his lips benumbed, and snoring loudly. 
but scarcely had he digested the maddening and burning liquor than the same cry, Ulrich, woke him like a bullet piercing his brain, and he got up, still staggering, stretching out his hands to save himself from falling and calling to Sam to help him. And the dog, who appeared to be going mad like his master, rushed to the door, scratched it with his claws and gnawed it with his long white teeth, while the young man, with his head thrown back, drank the brandy in draughts, as if it had been cold water, so that it might by and by send his thoughts, his frantic terror, and his memory to sleep again. In three weeks he had consumed all his stock of ardent spirits, but his continual drunkenness only lulled his terror, which awoke more furiously than ever as soon as it was impossible for him to calm it. His fixed idea then, which had been intensified by a month of drunkenness, and which was continually increasing in his absolute solitude, penetrated him like a gimlet. He now walked about the house like a wild beast in its cage, putting his ear to the door to listen if the other were there and defying him through the wall. Then, as soon as he dozed, overcome by fatigue, he heard the voice which made him leap on his feet. At last one night, as cowards do, when driven to extremities, he sprang to the door and opened it to see who was calling him and to force him to keep quiet. But such a gust of cold wind blew into his face that it chilled him to the bone, and he closed and bolted the door again immediately, without noticing that Sam had rushed out. Then, as he was shivering with cold, he threw some wood on the fire and sat down in front of it to warm himself. But suddenly he started for somebody was scratching at the wall and crying. In desperation he called out, Go away! But was answered by another long, sorrowful wail. Then all his remaining senses forsook him from sheer fright. He repeated, Go away! And turned round to try to find some corner in which to hide, while the other person went round the house, still crying and rubbing against the wall. Ulrich went to the oak sideboard, which was full of plates and dishes and of provisions, and lifting it up with superhuman strength, and dragged it to the door, so as to form a barricade, then piling up all the rest of the furniture, the mattresses, palliasses and chairs, he stopped up the windows, as one does when assailed by an enemy. But the person outside not uttered long, plaintive, mournful groans, to which the young man replied by similar groans, and thus days and nights passed without their ceasing to howl at each other. The one was continually walking round the house and scrapped the walls with his nails so vigorously that it seemed as if he had wished to destroy them, while the other, inside, followed all his movements, stooping down and holding his ear to the walls and replying to all his appeals with terrible cries. One evening, however, Ulrich heard nothing more, and he sat down so overcome by fatigue that he went to sleep immediately and awoke in the morning without a thought, without any recollection of what had happened, just 
as if his head had been emptied during his heavy sleep, but he felt hungry, and he ate. The winter was over, and the Gemi Pass was practicable again, so the Hauser family started off to return to their inn. As soon as they had reached the top of the ascent, the woman mounted their mule, and spoke about the two men whom they would meet again shortly. They were indeed rather surprised that neither of them had come down a few days before, as soon as the road was open, in order to tell them all about their long winter sojourn. At last, however, they saw the inn, still covered with snow like a kilt. The door and the window were closed, but a little smoke was coming out of the chimney, which reassured old Hauser. On going up to the door, however, he saw the skeleton of an animal, which had been torn to pieces by the eagles, a large skeleton lying on its side. They all looked close at it, and the mother said, That must be Sam! And then she shouted, I Gaspard! A cry from the interior of the house answered her, and a sharp cry that one might have thought some animal had uttered it. Old Hauser repeated, Hey, Gaspard! And they heard another cry, similar to the first. Then the three men, the father and his two sons, tried to open the door, but it resisted all their efforts. From the empty coastal they took a beam to serve as a battering ram and hurled it against the door with all their might. The wood gave way, and the boards flew into splinters. Then the house was shaken by a loud voice, and inside, behind the sideboard which was overturned, they saw a man standing upright, with his hair falling on his shoulders, and a beard descending to his breast, with shining eyes, and nothing but rags to cover him. They did not recognize him, but Louise Hauser exclaimed, It's Ulrich, mother! And her mother declared, that it was Ulrich, although his hair was white. He allowed them to go up to him and to touch him, but he did not reply to any of their questions, and they were obliged to take him to Loik, where the doctors found that he was mad, and nobody ever found out what had become of his companion. Little Louise Hauser nearly died that summer of decline, which the physicians attributed to the cold air of the mountains. Hi, I'm Jesse. I'm Mirko. And we're going to be talking about uh, Guy de Montpassant's short story called uh, The Inn. I think it's a short story. Maybe it's a no novelette. It's a, it's a few pages. I came across yes, this. Jimbo. So. And I thought, hey, Mirko should read this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I finally did. So, I appreciate it. Thanks. My question, my first question is, where did you pick it up and why uh, did you find it interesting enough to, to do it as a read-along? Well, um, I just, I've been reading more and more um, Montpassant and I couldn't find a definitive list of his stories or even his horror stories or even his ghost stories or anything like that so what it means is i i get you know copies of books and i find a montpassant story and i read it and if it's if it's kind of at all related i i want to talk about it <laughs> because he's such a great writer i think yes he is definitely 
the thing is that um, I had a hard time finding a, um, a translation of the in because there is nearly nothing in print anymore. There's just uh, some assorted stories and uh, some some novels. But uh, if you're going to try to find the in translated into German, uh, you can forget about it. I had to dig very, very deep into the internet and finally I got, an trans I got a translation. So um, I had to read it to find out what's going on. But, <laughs> yeah, but the thing is that um, my first encounter with the in Boston audio drama that you sent me. Oh yeah, I think that's I think that was really terrific, and that's one of the reasons I knew to pick that story out of a book that I had was what what I do is I figure if something's good, somebody's going to have mentioned it, and if I see enough mentions, um, you know, and I say, oh, I spotted that one here or there, um, then I'll pick that one out of out of a book of say. Um, Montpassant stories, and I, I do believe I saw that one on RadioArchive.cc. I found it in my book. I, I scanned the book, and then I read the story and listened to the audio drama. And then, of course, you recorded it for us, so yeah, it's cool. people know how cool it is. Uh, it doesn't seem like a ghost story, does it? At first, it, it just seems like a sort of a just a regular story. Yeah, it starts as a regular story, but um, the thing about most small passant stories is that they have a really cool twist in the end. He's, mm. uh, he's a very careful and uh, very well-constructing writer, isn't he? I'm not sure that this is a, a, a twist-ending uh, story as much as a twist sort of middle story, because it sort of just goes off the rails you know? where you might think it's going. Because it's got not, this not romance this. at the beginning, right? And that just goes totally off the rails. Yeah, not this in particular, but most of his stories are. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, he is an, the inventor of the short story. In, in, if anyone can be named that, it's, you know, there's Poe and there's, there's Montpassant. And um, it's... Uh, I've been really fascinated for, you know, reading his stuff for like maybe the last six years or so. Because every time I'd come across one, every you know, once in a while I'd find one, and I thought, wow, it's just such great writing, no matter what genre it's in. Yes. Um, and it's it, the way this one starts. Um, it's just very um, calm and uh, sort of deliberate, uh, and and quite beautiful in the metaphors that come up with it. But then it just it just turns into a spooky ghost story, but not a not a um, you know sort of uh, it's still sort of a um, ambiguous ghost story. I, I, I think some people would say it's not even a ghost story at all. Yes, I agree to that because it's a psychological happening there. Yeah, it's a definitely. psychological issue that um, there must not be some ghost. It's uh, it's crazy enough without a I, ghost. I love the reaction of the dog to the master, right? Yes. So if you look at it the one way, the dog is responding to a ghost that's outside, or revenant or whatever it is, something that's outside. <laughs> something, um, yeah. Yeah, and then another way, he's just responding to the way his master is behaving. Um, you know, he says, he, he looks at the door with fear, and the dog suddenly, you know, bristles at the, at the sight of his master bristling. 
Jetzt kind of, kind of a mirroring a mirror to his master, right? Can yeah, we say so? Yeah, and then and then the 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 horror. I think this is also a horror story because that poor dog. I mean, it gets led outside, yeah. uh, runs off to fight the monster, and then it becomes the monster. It it it, it just he, the master's totally forgotten that he sent the dog out there. So it's uh, just a little twist in there, right? Yeah. The dog yeah. runs out and then becomes a monster. Can say this. So what do you make? What do you make of the ending? The the very ending of the story. Uh, you know they they. I'm talking the very very ending. Ulrich's you know insane, white haired. Um, and then there's the last line. And it goes, little Louise Hauser nearly died that summer of decline, which the physicians attributed to the cold of the mountains, the cold air of the mountains. Actually, I am not sure. This uh, when I was when I was reading it, and um, the uh, Montpassant tells about the voice and this this. Um, When when Ulrich is all alone in in, the, in this uh, inn, and the voice and the voice comes again, and then the dog is out and he starts drinking. Um, of course, he he goes mad, and they had to return. I just I, I wanted to know if Ulrich was dead as well, and this just was he being the ghost, you know. Mm. It's it's a it's, it's a good interpretation, I think. I mean, it's yeah. it's the line is in there. If you take this that line out of the story, the story's still complete. So yes. it's like that extra step that makes you think. Well, that, the doctors say it was from the cold. Yeah, the thing is that Gaspard could have returned to Schwarenbach finally and said. Uh, well, Ulrich is dead, and like in the others, this movie with Nicole Hitman, she is the ghost, right? right? So this could also be that Ulrich was the ghost. You are left a bit, um, it's, it's uh, not clear. So Montpassant tricks us. Um, we also could assume that Ulrich is the ghost, and everything outside is just uh, going there's a rescue group arriving and the like it's um tension to the end i would mm. say i would say yeah i i didn't i didn't think of it that way but I, it does fit the facts um it, it, he, they barely make when they go out looking for gaspard the dog and and ulrich um they barely make it back right? yes they, the dog is limping on three legs uh and And, it, it, and they have to, that's they have to the, uh, dig a snow hole. Yeah, I mean uh, that's the thing. Uh, yeah, they bury themselves, right? <laughs> um, that's the thing about this story is it's got a. Um, it's not like Ulrich did something terribly wrong, right? He's punished for no reason. Yeah, this this was astonishing too because um, he he was out to find his companion, but of course didn't find him. So. Um, But he blames himself. Yeah, he blames himself. So this this voice he hears is probably just his, his inner, inner feeling. His yeah, um, I think that's certainly how what he thinks of. Well, I don't think he ever thinks of that, but it's what I thought of at first. Right? Is oh, he's just 
it's just white noise. You in a white noise, you hear whatever it is you are anticipating. And he's got yeah. this religious belief that if the guy's body isn't buried in a in a uh, consecrated grave, then then the ghost can't rest. Yeah, and, and this is what we uh, are assuming. But and the audio drama, they. Hmm. I think it's a really good adaptation. Gaspard really it's, it's very hard to adapt, oh, yes. but they did a great yeah. job with it. They did a very good job. And uh, I was uh, listening on, uh, to it first when I went uh, back from Cologne, and, mm -hmm. and I had to walk five kilometers <laughs> through the night, and it was very cold. And I really liked the feeling that the uh, mm. atmosphere that it creates. And there Gaspard really says, if I'm dead, I'm going to return, not as a body, but my soul, my spirit is going to return to the mountains. Mm -hmm. And th the ravens that, uh, that are appearing there, um, they put the ravens in the audio drama more, more, uh, um, they are more important than in the stories I remember it. Right. There's almost yeah. the story's almost been rewritten and added to because Sorry, go ahead. The, the narrator of the of the of the audio drama is Louise Hauser and she has uh, zero maybe one line or something. She says no, and then she also says later on she's the one to recognize um, Ulrich, but that's it. She has no role to play other than sort of just being the female love interest in the story. But yeah. in the audio drama, she is the she is the storyteller. And that's an interesting way to approach the uh, the, the plot, right? Absolutely. Yeah. It's it's, a, it's very beautiful and 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 scary, and it does sort of go off the rails, haunting haunting you. But it's uh yeah, it's it's a it's very interesting adaptation because it doesn't. It's actually longer than the the, the short story in yes. narration. It's about an, almost an hour. Whereas the narration, I think, is about 40 minutes, right? Right. And this is, um, I, I really like the, actually I have to say that I like the audio drama more than the story. <laughs> I, I think it improved on it. I, I think so. I think it did improve on it. But there is some, there's some great beauty in the, in the story itself that I think is what the adapters of that audio drama were picking up on. So, mm -hmm. Uh, one of the things that I, I found in on the second reading through is um, a metaphor that sort of fills the whole story very um, uh, well, but is very subtle. Um, and it, the first one is just near on the first page, actually. It, here's a, an approximate of it. The sky was growing pale overhead, and the strange light springing nobody could tell whence suddenly illuminated the immense ocean of pale mountain summits. Yes. And so it's like they're in an ocean of mountains. And I believe earlier, oh, that's actually later, uh, there's an ocean of hills, yeah. A ray of sunlight fell into yeah. the little white, listening, frozen desert and illuminated it with a cold and dazzling flame. No living thing appeared among the ocean of mountains. There was no motion in this immeasurable solitude. And no noise disturbed the profound silence. It's like, wow, that gives you a real sense of of them being totally alone. Like, one guy's fallen overboard on a ship, the other guy's trying to find him, but he's under the water. Yeah, that's, that's right. Um, the thing is that I noticed um, in my in my research that 
at um, mainstream writers in the 18th and 19th century wrote about the vertical issue of, and the typical outposts and mountaineer things mm. going uh, from from uh, the bottom to the top, the Alps rising high, mm. you know. And the difference is that that Montbazon and some other guys like uh, Arthur Rambeau and even our, uh, Wolfgang von Goethe, they are describing the plains. Mm. And uh, the, the the wintry plain surfaces of of the Alps, and this is this is something that is more interesting because um, mountains, of course, are high, but if you're just fixed to the the vertical issue, it's like okay, we're going up there. But if you if you have been to the Alps, and I've been there, I've seen really vast plains with with snow or with nothing or with there is this is only white there you can you can see anything but but snow white there and mm-hmm. um of course it, it it really makes you a bit um feel tiny and goethe said once that only a very stable character could not fall into great fear and despair there if ah. seeing this this plains and also really catched it he really and made some very good descriptions there right yeah, and it's 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 like a, it's I would say it's like a, a proto version of the cosmic horror as well. When you look at the way he describes this, this solitude, this you know deadness in you know the world is dead, right? And he's in he's in this world alone. It's like the dog isn't even a companion. It's just something that's that's um, responding to him and. He sort of at, at at the point where he starts or breaks uh, when he realizes that you know when he has that dream or whatever that wakes him up that breaking point he just forgets that there is even a dog he doesn't even notice the dog runs outside uh, in response to the master not not at the master's bidding right just looking at the master he sees what's going on and he thinks uh, I'll do what the master wants or you know i'll respond the the appropriate way (laughs) and yet the master's already gone he's he's already lost in his his imagination of what's going on yeah speaking of cosmic horror um there is a hp lovecraft story called the festival i've not read that one that's still i've heard about it but i've not read that one that's a cool one you get everything in there you get you get the necronomicon and (laughs) And some kind of uh, fish like people like in Innsmouth. It's a cool, cool Christmas story, kind of. And he he goes to the old King, Kingsport, I guess, and snow falls. And I've read somewhere that the snow works like a passageway from leaving the real world into this somewhat obscure Gothic-like world world and that's the same here but in hp lovecraft you really know that this is a metaphor but here montpasson takes this uh this description just for the use of uh describing nature mm-hmm. right and it it has a, a second uh, meaning and that's the most interesting thing in the story that everything 
seems to have a second meaning if you're going through it uh, the second or the third time uh, reading it then it you you get you just get it then first reading oh, okay it's cool story second reading well wait a minute this has been anticipated before and third reading well i i think i got it you know listen listen to this quote and it sort of illustrates what i think you're saying uh, the sky was growing pale overhead, and a strange light springing nobody... Oh, yeah, I got that part before. One might have said that this vague brightness arose from the snow itself and spread abroad in space. So it's like the the world is... Um, it's like it, it's almost like a, he's on the moon, right? He's alone yeah. on the moon, which is kind of a... I mean, I love the, the idea of the way they sent the guys to the moon they had to send two right they can't leave the two guys yeah. one guy alone on the moon it has to be two and why two well because uh if we sent them there alone one guy would say to himself am i gonna stay and the other guy would say no you're gonna you know the they have to be paired and uh, i mean this is a story really about being alone and and being uh and not just alone, uh, you know, trapped in a mountain getting cabin fever, right? Like yeah. that. But more like being alone in the cosmos, being alone in the universe. No matter yeah. what we do in society, we are still fundamentally alone because we die alone. We are alone yeah. with our thoughts. And we can choose to share them or try to. But ultimately, uh, no matter how many games of dice we play... <laughs> um, right. The, the the community allows us to be together and not have to see that we are fundamentally alone. And and when he, you know, it, I wouldn't have done it the way they, those guys do. I would have brought a lot of books up there. And then, <laughs> I mean, you can't play dice games alone, right? You could play solitaire, I guess, but maybe he doesn't know solitaire. That would have yes. made it, maybe saved him. But I would have brought a bunch of books up there. Yeah, but That's what I would uh, have done. Yeah, and I'm not that's, alone. That's the thing. Yeah, that's the thing uh, you would do. But I guess those were just uh, they're illiterate mountain peasants. Right. So, yeah. Not, not that there's the anything wrong that with that, other than they can't read, <laughs> 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 which which is something pretty damn terrible. But yeah, yeah, sure. That's that's one of my uh, my favorite things. Also, I would take tons of books. And probably if I had the device, tons of audiobooks to uh, Lonely Island. And uh, the thing is that um, Gaspar, Gaspar is very used to live up there in the winter. He knows what to do. He's got. He's done technique. it 14, 14 winters before. Didn't he do it uh, 16 winters when you when Luis was born? That's the thing that that came to mind. Um, he he knows about the techniques of survival up there. This is daily routine and playing cards. So what happened to him? That's never answered either. That's what, what, never what answered, think? right. I don't know. We, we sort of get the sense he fell into a crevasse or something, right? I guess. It's exhibitional death. Yeah, it's not like he, you know, uh, uh, a mountain goat, you know, <laughs> ate him or something. There's not a lot of monsters up there. It's more of like mon- the nature, nature is the monster. It's a, it even says like an accident. The, the, the unknown thing. 
yeah. might happen, but but the the thing that it's unknown terrifies more. Yeah, yeah. That, indeed, if the if he had found the body, I don't think he would be so traumatized. Yeah, that's that's the thing. He doesn't know what happened to to Gaspar, and then he has to has to think about and. Um, he's terrified by the sheer fact that he does not know what happened. There might be a monster out there. There might be some some accident. Anything. So the, being in being unsecured, that's the thing that terrifies him, and that's so cool. I have to say, because um, there you get the horror, right? Yep. The terror. The terror mm-hmm. would be more precise to say it's terror. Terror of the soul. Right? Yeah. He, he's. He's. It's also, I mean, it's guilt, I think, that is, you know, undeserved guilt, but a combination of loneliness, blaming himself, uh, you know, there is a, a wind blowing, right? That yeah. is, uh, I think the reason they always leave two people up there is is because they can't leave one. And here's the reason you can't leave one. <laughs> if you leave one... And, and yet, you know, there is a line in there that does explain his guilt, I think, a little bit. Why, you know, like, if you think about, he didn't really do anything wrong. But um, I, I noted it, I think, maybe the second or third time I went through it. I'll see if I can bring it up here. Um, let's see. Ah, yes, here it is. Um, the thermometer outside marked 18 degrees of frost, and the sun had not yet risen. The hunter hoped to surprise the animals uh, as at the approaches of the wild struble. And Ulrich, being alone, remained in bed until ten o'clock. He was of a sleepy nature, but he would not have dared to give way like that to his, inc- to his inclination in the presence of the old guide, who was ever an early riser. He breakfasted leisurely with Sam, who also spent his yeah. days and nights in sleeping in front of the fire. Then he felt low-spirited and even frightened at solitude, and was seized by a longing for his daily game of cards, as one by the craving of a confirmed habit. And so he went out to meet his companion, who was to return at four o'clock. So uh, he 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 feels guilty about sleeping in, but yes. it's his nature. Yeah. And I yeah. love that he wouldn't have done that if, if uh, Gaspard was there. He would was not there. have shown Gaspard that he was a, a sleepy boy. <laughs> right? Yeah. So what about... Um, the story was written eighty-eight. I'm not sure. I'm not sure what year it was written. Six. Eighteen eighty-six. I looked it up. <laughs> I'm sorry. Okay. Yeah, eighty-six. And from eighteen eighty-three to eighteen eighty-six, um, Guy de Maupassant himself was at the um, what's that? Salpetriere. He went to visit some, some hospital university. Yeah, yeah, he was in Paris and went to visit lectures by Jean-Martin Chanson, I guess, about hysteria. That's mm. interesting. That's an interesting fact because because uh, Guy de Maupassant was himself losing his mind, right? Yeah, he he was variously losing. He just his went mind. mad at the end. Of- yeah, and, but not out so, of loneliness, more out of. Um, uh, disease. He was. Disease. He was. Yes. Riddled with whatever that sexual disease was, I can't remember the name of in the 19th century. 
and he himself went over the Gemi Pass and probably uh, had a night over in Schwarmbach uh, when he was 27. So he was mm, he know he knows what he's talking about, right? That's right. Yeah. Um, in fact, that opens still, the still the Inn of Schwarmbach. Um, yeah, still the the Inn of Schwarmbach um, is. Uh, uh, is is in, in in business, and oh, they really? yeah right. Uh, so I, I found it on the internet that that they are referring to the story. Wow. Yeah, that's that, cool. I, I might go. <laughs> well, uh, just you know, if you go up there, don't go alone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, never. Um, coming back to the. Sorry. You're right. There is a Berg Hotel Sparenbach. Um, right. Um, I'm saying if you go, just don't go alone and make sure you bring some books too. <laughs> yeah, right. And um, what I like about the story is the description of this isolation. I really love stories with a description of isolation. Even well, that, it's one that guy like us to maybe Stephen King's most famous novel, if there is one. Yeah, He's got the Shining. The, the Shining, right? Um, yeah. So I, I saw the movie. I've never seen the read the book. Have you read the book? No, that's too. No. Long. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a much longer version of this story, right? The, yeah. the Shining's four hundred forty-seven pages. Yeah. Uh, but it is, I think, uh, very much inspired by the Inn. It's basically yes. the same plot, right? Right. Right. There's always some. Indian cemetery. No, I, I can't remember the. Why? Why? Why, why is the hotel haunted? The I, don't, I don't recall. But one way of one way of looking at it is that it's it is an internal flaw. I, I mean, I think that's the reason Ulrich goes crazy is not from external forces. Right. It's it's from a dis, either a discovery of of cosmic horror. And uh, and and little loneliness incumbent with that, along with his his um, belief that uh, un unburied uh, friend can haunt you. Yeah, that combination is is deadly to him, or at least ruinous. And it's he can't speak after that. That's pretty bad. He could. I think the way they put it is, the way uh, Montfaucon put it was, he could speak no human words. Just gr just uh, rolling, and giving some giving away some noise. Yeah. Yeah. He could. He made sounds, but yes. not human. Wow. Yeah. That's that's yeah. I just didn't catch that. Just as he said it, he he starts. Losing his his language, right? Yeah. It's a uh, cool. and one thing. Yeah, go ahead. No, continue. Um, there is a story by George R. R. Martin. I don't recall the the exact title, but it's about uh, some some man watching a portal in in space. He's on a space station. Oh, night flights. Could be. I I don't know the English title anyway. I'm pretty sure that's it. 1980 yeah. novella. Yeah, kind of. I get, just get it in a short story collection here and was fascinated by the fact that he's all alone 
up there in the mm. in in the in space and uh, is opening the portal just to to dream about anything and there is also a story about um a uh, guard on a transmitter station do you know what a transmitter station is it's just like beaming and it's from an a german author named william Foltz, who is very famous here he used to be very famous because he was one of the expose writers for uh perry the perry roden series and, ah. and um, he wrote a story about some guy who has to do his job on a space station and then suddenly um a war breaks loose and he has to deal with that but the description of the loneliness on this station is very good. It's so. It's a it's a very fruitful topic, I think. I, I really love this topic. Also, Silent Running. Do you know the movie Silent Running? Of course. Yes, that that one's got a slightly different message than than. <laughs> yeah, but, but it's certainly a story about loneliness. Yeah, but but uh, concerning that you are all alone in space or all alone in the Alps, facing the cosmic horror. Uh, the description of loneliness. I, I really love this. It's it, it's a very enduring thing. I mean, it's in uh, I Am Legend as well, right? Yeah. That uh, that's a, uh, that's also got a very nice. Um, uh, I was going to say romance with the dog. <laughs> um, <laughs> there's a dog in that story, and when the dog has something tragic happen, um, it's it's just an incredible tragedy in the in the novel. You, you you're even more upset than the characters. <laughs> yeah, because that's that's kind of a uh, um, metaphor or a symbol. The dog is one of the first um, uh, first animals that men used to be a more than only a cow or a pig mm. to yeah. have more to that man puts more character or thinks that a, a dog has more character than a, a another animal. You know what I mean? That's a good companion, companion of, of the hunter and companion of the man. And uh, if you are all alone and many stories, you get a dog with you. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's one. Uh, that's the, one of the things that he shouldn't go crazy because he's got a dog. Right. He's got something. Yeah. Something. Look at the uh, discipline. Right. To be with, even if it's not one. You can uh, even if you can't play cards with him, you should be able to throw the ball, <laughs> uh, you know, rub his belly and all that stuff, right? And I just watched uh, we watched the movie I Am Legend. You mentioned that um, we watched it, I guess, a week ago. And what I was surprised that something similar uh, appeared in in both stories. That's the discipline. And the routine the characters have. Gaspar has uh, his routine of, yeah. oh, I don't know, play cards, chopping wood, doing daily yeah. works, and also what what was Will Smith? The Will Smith character has this routine, uh, noting when the sun goes down, um, doing his research and the like. Yeah, he's basically doing busy work, right? Busy yeah. work is the thing that keeps keeps the uh, keeps. The demons at bay, the demon of loneliness. Yeah. It's uh, it, it, right. it, it, all life is busy work um, until the grave, right? <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's you choose the kind of busy work you want, but if you if you stop, yes. then you have to face the, the truth, the 
This is just like, just like, um, just like Robinson Crusoe, who has to do do the, the work just to survive. Yeah, it's it, in that case, it's more of an adventure. Um, so it doesn't seem like it, it, there's no horrific element to it. There's certainly some fear in there, but it's it's more of a he's like um, he's sort of the happy version of all of that. <laughs> Yeah, if, if there is a heavy version, Robin Crusoe. Uh, he even gets a dog, right? I mean, the the the, <laughs> the Robinson Crusoe dog. But there's also he gets Friday and he gets Friday, right? Right. I mean, it's it's not like I, I someone, think someone the scene that everybody remembers from that story is when he's on the beach and he sees a human footprint, right? And then the story yeah, sort of yeah. just makes that change. Oh, there's another movie. <laughs> Also, due to this uh, loneliness effect, this castaway with Tom Hanks, he, right. he he does not have any living companion. He has Wilson, this this uh, right. beach volleyball, whatever this was. Yeah, he's delivering. He's that's delivering also, a beach volleyball a for some reason. <laughs> yeah, but but when when he's on 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 the ocean and he loses Wilson because he swims away, he just uh, get lost. You know, hmm. uh, what a touching moment this is. When he's crying, I'm sorry, Wilson, I'm sorry. I think this is a very touching moment in this uh, in this movie. In if there is no, uh, it's not a living thing. It's just a ball, right? Yep. Well, he's in. He's um, he's embodied. He's given it a face, right? It's not like. A, he he sort of deliberately created this other to care about because he he has no one in real life. Um, the other the other thing that I I wanted to the other story I wanted to talk about I think just a little bit which is quite different from uh, the genre, but I thought it was sort of a, a nice sort of companion piece. Uh, is another Guy de Maupassant short story called uh, the Piece of String or sometimes. I prefer the title, uh, The Piece of Yarn. Uh, the reason I prefer the title, A Piece of Yarn, is because it's a story, and a synonym for story is yarn. <laughs> okay. Um, um, so, uh, the, I think the French title is La Facile, which is probably more close to string than it is uh, yarn, but it doesn't really matter for the story story's purposes. It's a, it's a story about a farmer... Uh, who is walking into town for the market day, and he's old, um, and on his way through the town, he notices a piece of string in the mud on the street. And he bends over to pick it up because he is not one, he's very thrifty, and he's not one to throw away something that is in, you know, useless. And so he picks, bends over and picks up a piece of string which obviously is of no value in itself, but if you combine it with other pieces of string, you've you've got something that you can do something with. You know, it can tie something up or, you know, fix a I don't know a lamp or <laughs> something. And yet he knows this is pretty thrifty or frugal or pathetic. And so, as he's picking it up, he notices that he's being watched by uh, an enemy of his, somebody he once made a deal with over a over a uh, cow or something. He was buying a cow, and the, the guy 
charged him too much or something. So they're enemies. And he he picks up the string and sees that the guy saw him. So he pretends to be still looking at the ground for something valuable and then walks off because he knows that it would be very embarrassing to be found. It's like picking up a penny when you're a millionaire, you know. How cheap can you be sort of thing. I mean, a piece of string is not really a great value. Or eating a sandwich that you find on the sidewalk. <laughs> Being seen eating <laughs> yeah. a sandwich that you found on the sidewalk could be embarrassing to many people. So he wanders off, and, and then later on, uh, it's said that a uh, rich man's wallet had been lost on the road, and his friend, oh, no, sorry, his friend, his enemy uh, thinks that that's what he was picking up, this lost rich man's wallet. And the police come and investigate because the enemy has informed upon him. Um, and they say, so where's the wallet that you found on the street that you haven't turned in? And he says, I found no wallet. It was, I found just a piece of string. <laughs> and they said, you bent over on the road to pick up a piece of string. That's your story. And he says, yes, that's, that's what happened. And nobody believes him. And nobody in the whole town believes him. And he dies alone <laughs> and unloved, still trying to argue that yeah. you know, for years and years that everybody just hears him and they start laughing because he's just got such an outrageously stupid lie. And it's such okay. a sad story. And yet it's not like he did something gravely wrong. Right? What yeah. he did was a little bit embarrassing. And yet he was got in this horrible situation and died a, an early death. Not even his own family believing him. Oh, that's sad. And it's like, oh, it's terrible. But uh, the, the reason it, I was reminded of it is it has a similar opening kind of description of the setting. So here's the opening of the inn. I'll just bring that up. Starts. Resembling in appearance all the wooden hostelries in the high Alps situated at the foot of the glaciers in the barren rocky gorges that intersect the summits of the mountains, the inn at Schwarenbach serves as a resting place for travelers crossing the Gami Pass. And then, here's the opening of the piece of string. It was market day, and from all the country around Goderville, the peasants and their wives were coming towards town. The men walked slowly through the whole body forward, uh, throwing their whole body forward at every step, their long crooked legs. They were deformed, pushing the plow from pushing the plow, which makes the left shoulder higher and bends their figure sideways from reaping the grain. When they have, have to spread their legs to keep their feet, their starched blue blouses, glossy as though varnished, ornamental at the collar cuffs with a little embroidered design and blown out around their bony bodies, looked very much like Balloons about to soar, whence issued two arms and feet. Uh, two feet. Um, so what what we get is a whole bunch of people who all look the same. Yes. They're all identical. in this, And it continues for a couple of paragraphs. Um, and then we finally meet one of them. And that's our character, right? He's exactly like everybody else. There's nothing distinguishing him. In fact... His enemy is exactly like him, and they all are trapped in this problem, which is they are disbelievers because of their Norman nature. They are skeptical, and they are always thinking somebody's trying to uh, trick them. So 
he himself would do exactly what is being done to him. He would doubt and disbelieve such a silly story of a man picking up a piece of string instead of having stolen a wallet, which is obviously something much more of value. And in our story, there's nothing about Ulrich that makes him particularly subject to uh, having had this punishment given to him. He is just a regular guy. A regular guy, right. It could have happened to anyone, and therefore it could have happened to us. That yeah. The hotel, the hotel that the, the inn that they're at is exactly like all the other hotels in the mountains of Switzerland. But this particular set of circumstances only happens every ten generations or whatever. <laughs> Some, but you, you get that story at the end that his hair turns white. Right? How many times have we heard that? <laughs> his hair turns white overnight. I don't know where it started, but it may have started here. Probably, but um, that's that's one of the Guillermo Passant things that common people are getting thrown into hard hard times, right? And that's the, uh, therefore we one should recommend them to read more Guillermo Passant because the stories are so cool. Yeah, they're they're very um, full of um, even when the characters are unsympathetic, uh, they are all sympathetic to the human situation. Yes. There's uh, um, a thing I'd like to quote, but not from Guillaume Passant, but of um, Bye Bye. If you love Craft, of course, and supernatural horror and literature, <laughs> if you don't mind, there he says, The horror tales of the powerful and cynical Guillaume Passant, written as his final madness gradually overtook him, present individualities. Of their own being rather the morbid outpourings of a realistic mind in a pathological state than the healthy imaginative products of a vision naturally disposed toward fantasy and sensitive to the normal illusions of the unseen. There you go, the unseen. Nevertheless, they are of the keenest interest and poignancy. Poignancy poignancy, suggesting with marvelous force in the immense of nameless terrors and the relentless dogging of an ill-starred individual by hideous and menacing representatives of the outer blackness. There yeah. you get the supernatural, uh, the, the cosmic horror again. It is exactly cosmic horror. And yes. You can see that even if Lovecraft is discovering it independently, there is a uh, something to be discovered. Yeah. And it's it's so unusual to find um, that there are people so long ago who are who are able to appreciate the immensity of reality when so many people around us are watching Honey Boo Boo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and um, by the way, Lovecraft as well just took the motif of the horror. You had a read-along of, uh, of The Hollow, right? And yep. put it into uh, Call of Cthulhu. <laughs> oh. Somehow, I still... Horlai in the Call of Cthulhu? Yeah, I still huh? just don't know <laughs> where or why. But uh, it is mentioned by some some uh, uh, academics that The Hollow was 
one of the many influences for some descriptions in Call of Cthulhu. So we probably have to do a read along on Call of Cthulhu to find that out. I would love to. I've never, I've never, I've never read that story. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we have shocking to. revelation. Yes, it's true. I've never <laughs> read. If I have, I don't remember it. I, when I think of Lovecraft, I don't think of immense tentacles. I think of statement of Randolph Carter or something more about the less embodied and more the the cosmic. Yes. I think about, yeah, I think it would be it would be a good one to do. This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com.